thrilling insights, unpredictable conversations, encouragement for your day. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Ah, uh, yes, the Patrick Madrid Show. Here we go. We're going to get this road show back on the road, and you can call and be on the air. 888-914-9149. That number is your ticket to being on the air to ask a question, make a comment, what have you. I'd love to talk to you. 888-914-9149. Email, send them to me at patrick at relevantradio.com. I noticed an email came to you, Cyrus. It was intended for me, but it came to you from a listener. And it was comments about me, but she didn't send it to me. So I just want to make sure everybody has that email. I mean, I think Cyrus is fine getting emails, but I'm like, just going to forward them to me. I don't mind. No, you, you like reading my emails, don't you? Yeah, so that's a weird me. pleasure out of it. I don't know. Yeah, well, so be it. Uh, Patrick at RelevantRadio.com. So we'll be getting to phone calls here in a minute, though. First, though, I, I received a question that I I had not been asked before. And I where do I have it here? Um, it's a question from a lady who, and I think raised it because maybe a movie that she and her friends were going to go see. And ah, I have the same email, and it's it's a like an off Broadway show. Okay, off Broadway show. And why don't you just read the email because <laughs> I have it in my stack here. And I was I was All riffling right. through my stack. I think I oh, I did find it. Never mind. Okay, I good. Found it. Okay, right here. Uh, so it says, this is seriously weird. Please laugh at me and my friends. Oh, I would never do that. Uh, some friends and I were talking the other day, and my theology degree has me hilariously stumped. Can Catholics attend burlesque shows in good faith? We couldn't come up with a good answer, and I'm curious if you have any ideas. Thank you. You're welcome. I do have a few ideas. I thought the first thing I would do as I was doing my extensive and exhausting show prep I thought I would look up the word burlesque and find out, you know, not just the etymology of it, but has the has the term changed in its meaning? And it turns out to have changed. So burlesque, reading here from uh, the article on Wikipedia, is a literary, dramatic, or musical work intended to cause laughter by caricaturing the manner or spirit of serious works or by ludicrous treatment of their subjects. The word derives from the Italian burlesco, which in turn is derived from the Italian burla, a joke, ridicule, or mockery. Uh, Se burlan de mi would be a way to say it in Spanish. They're making fun of me. Burlesque overlaps with caricature, parody, and travesty, and in its theatrical form with extravaganza as presented during the Victorian era. The word burlesque has been used in English in this literary and theatrical sense since the late 17th century. Now, skipping forward to a later use of the term, particularly in the United States, it refers to uh, performances in a variety show format. These were popular from the 1860s to the 1840s, often in cabarets and clubs as well as theaters and featuring body comedy, body spelled B-A-W-Y, Another way to to say that would be racy or lewd or um, impure, depending on how you want to describe it. These were popular <clears throat> in this time frame from the 1860s to 1840s. Uh, female striptease, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think I need to go any further. So 
back to the lady's emailing question, is it okay to go see a burlesque show? My answer would be, depends on what kind of burlesque show it is. So if it's something that is merely this variety show format, kind of lampooning or making fun of serious people, ridicule, mockery, uh, and, and it's confined to that, I can see where it would not be a serious sin or perhaps not even a sin at all. But if it strays into the more recent use of the term burlesque that involves nudity, um, trying to titillate the audience, try to, um, you know, do the things that that kind of thing tends to do to one's mind, stirring up impure thoughts, et cetera, et cetera, then sure, I would say that would be a sin to go to something like that. Ooh, I don't want that on my karmic record. No, I really don't. Mm-mm. You really don't, Cyrus. You really don't. So I don't know why I directed that towards you, but you're the closest person in the studio yeah, right thanks. now. Yeah. So that's my take on it. I would say um, maybe one thought would be something that is light-minded or frivolous can be funny if, if it's ludicrous treatment and mocking, joking, ridiculing in a way that could be injurious. Hmm, maybe, I don't know, maybe I might avoid that. But I would definitely avoid it if it involves um, scantily clothed people or worse than that, I would, I would avoid that. So I hope that that is helpful. I would say if somebody's going to a show like that, knowing that this kind of uh, scantily clothed people or maybe less than scantily clothed people will be there and that will be part of it, then I would avoid it. And I would say for me personally, it would be a sin if I were to go knowing that. Now, if I went and I didn't know it and I was taken off guard and I, I wasn't intending to do that, sometimes these things happen. So I wouldn't categorize that as a sin, of course, because you didn't consent to it. So did I do fair justice to that, Cyrus? Do you think I answered that? I think he covered it. I think so. Yeah. Well, that's great. So now I can check the box for burlesque questions. I have never been asked one before, and now I can say that I have. It's not every day you're asked a question you haven't been asked before. You know, it's an interesting point you make there, Cyrus, because over the years of doing this, especially in front of live audiences, oh my gosh, just I feel so blessed to have had all of those years, 35, 36 years, whatever it is now, of speaking in front of audiences, you know, maybe audiences of 50, maybe audiences of 3,000, and taking questions in the moment. These are live questions, un, unscripted. I don't know the question before the person at the microphone asks the question. And I really do thank God for all of that experience because over time, you kind of do hear most all the questions that are out there. There are only so many variations on a theme. And this is why when Billy called me, I was it was more fun for me because um, these are all the standard kind of questions that people, you know, maybe in his world, looking at the Catholic Church as something evil and unchristian. Those are the very common types of questions that come up. Yeah, that Billy call was in the third hour a few days ago. Do you want to let people know exactly what you're referring to? Oh, yeah. Thank you. For those who may not know, I had a very spirited conversation with a gentleman named Billy, and I don't remember where he was from, but it seemed to me he might have been down in Texas, maybe, or Georgia. And he he was very um, animated, and he had lots of arguments that he wanted to get into about the Catholic Church. Unfortunately, we sort of went from one to the next to the next to the next. We couldn't really dig deep into any of them. But it was, I think, a very enlightening call 
And there are a lot of people who hold the same views that Billy does as a Protestant, that Catholics are going to hell. He said that, I don't know, three, four hundred times in our conversation. Um, very, he very much wanted to remind me that I was going to hell, as are all Catholics in his estimation. So where would people go to find that quickly on the Relevant Radio app, Cyrus? Would they just see it in the best of section? Yeah, that's right. It was the best of the week. Uh, and so if you go to relevantradio.com or open up the app, uh, you could either go to the Patrick Madrid Show uh, tab, you'll find it there, mm-hmm. or you can find it under the best of the week. Yeah, thank you. And relevantradio.com, of course, the, the homepage is relevantradio.com slash Patrick. And the Relevant Radio app should be on your phone. If it's not on your phone, how come it's not on your phone? It's free. Uh, one final thought. I did get an email, and I'm afraid I don't have it in front of me, so I'm not able to quote it verbatim, but words to the effect a gentleman wrote in to say, I don't think you should have promoted that call with Billy. That's like, a, he didn't say fishing in a barrel, but words to that effect. It's like, come on, he doesn't, he doesn't represent somebody who's formidable. And my response to that person would be simply, it takes all kinds, brother. There are people who are formidable in their thought process and their arguments, more sophisticated. There are people who are not. And the kind of call that I had with Billy is exemplary of what many Catholics have to go through. Maybe on the job or a family member or they're in some public place, somebody finds out he's Catholic. And these these are also the kind of experiences that many Catholics have. So yes, there is a reason to draw people's attention to calls like that as a way to say, if you're going through something like this, here's one way you could handle it, you yeah. know, by modeling. You actually had an email uh, from, let's see if I can find this real quick. Uh, this is, the email is from uh, William. So, he, and it says, from one Billy to the other, hmm. uh, all one needs to hear is the demeanor of the two engaged in conversation to discern the true Christian among them. Billy the Baptist was arrogant, rude, interrupt. This is I'm reading an email here. He, okay, Billy so it's the, not you speaking. I'm not this. saying this. Okay. Billy the Baptist, arrogant, rude, interrupting, extremely judgmental, unwilling to listen. Uh, Patrick the Catholic, calm, cool, collected, quoting scripture. Love you. Uh, Will from San Bernito, California. San Bernardino? Oh, <laughs> thank you. I thought you said San Bernito. I've never heard of that. <laughs> yeah, Bernardino. Now, so do I understand correctly that that the gentleman who wrote that email, he himself is Protestant? That's how I'm taking it. Okay. Yep. Huh. Well, that's cool. We have a lot of different listeners here. A lot of Catholic folk, of course, probably the majority, I would guess, but a lot of Latter-day Saints, a lot of Protestant folk, um, and others. So I welcome everybody, and I'm happy to talk to you regardless of your perspective on things. You would be warmly welcomed and respected here. 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. Let's get over to Colleen now, excuse me, in Boston. Good morning, Colleen. Let me just take you off to speak. Hi, Patrick. I have um, uh, had a, an interesting uh, talk with my husband about, we were looking in Revelation, and uh, he is he's, he's a non-Catholic, and I am a Catholic, just okay. to give you the background. And he... Is he- if I may interrupt, is he a non-Catholic Christian? Has he been baptized, or is he not a Christian? Yes, he's baptized. He's okay. a Christian. Okay. So uh, he says this, you know, John says, these are things that must come to pass, or will come to pass. And uh, so we're talking about, then we go to Our Lady, you know, with the diadem of 12 stars and the moon under her mm-hmm. feet, and... um 
she gives birth to the child who is uh, immediately snatched up to the throne of God. So I said, you know, who is that? It has to be God. It has to be Jesus. And he said, but it can't be Jesus because these are things in the future. And I said, and that's Mother Mary. He said, but how could it be? Because that already had happened and this is in the future. And I didn't have an answer. And I, I got actually curious myself. So I thought I'd ask him. Yeah, it's a it's a fair question or a fair point on his part. So this is a mystical vision. We see the the prefix of it in the very last two verses of Revelation chapter eleven, where Saint John talks about <clears throat> the temple in God's in the heaven God's temple in the heavens was opened, and in it he could see the Ark of the Covenant, and then he describes the terrible storm, thunder, lightning, hailstones, etc. And then the next verse is Revelation 12, 1, and a great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was with child, and she cried out in her pangs of birth in anguish for delivery. Then as you go down in verse 5, it says, she brought forth a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, ask when you ask this question about verse 5, who is this male child? Well, it, it is, of course, Jesus. That is true. And one way, if, if your husband says, well, I don't think it's Jesus, then say, then who else will rule all the nations with a rod of iron? If it's not Jesus... Who who else is it talking about? He found that scary. He said that doesn't sound like Jesus to have the rod of iron. Just yeah, so on. Well, Go on. No, yeah, no need for him to be scared about that. This, by the way, is highly symbolic language, and so this is a glimpse of something that's real, that's not in time, the way we live in time right now, where the birth of Jesus was an historical event. It actually took place at a certain time, on a certain day, in a certain year. This is a mystical vision that incorporates the reality of Christ's nativity all those 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, but it's also subsumed into the end times. So you're on firm ground here, and what you can say is that this male child, as referenced in verse 5, is Jesus Christ. He is the one who will rule all the nations. He is the King of kings, as the Bible elsewhere says. So the literal meaning of verse 5 is the male child is Jesus. So, by correspondence, the literal meaning of the woman who's mentioned in verse 1 must be the Blessed Virgin Mary. It must be her, because there's no other literal mother of Jesus. Now, there could be figurative meanings. Some scholars point out that this could be a reference to Israel, and Israel is figured by the woman or or symbolized by the woman and all the pain and suffering that the people of God went through before the Messiah arrived. That's That could be a valid way of reading that. Because there are different senses of Scripture, the underlying sense of every other sense of Scripture would be the literal sense. And we can establish safely that literally the, the child is Jesus, the mother must be Mary. And then what are the other possible ways of looking at that? Uh, some have, have said the church is another way. Now, I personally don't hold that view because I think it's difficult to defend that from the text, but there are other ways of looking at who the woman is. But if you take the literal approach, the most important and fundamental of all the approaches to Scripture, 
it must be Jesus and it must be Mary. And but he he said if that is Jesus and Mary, then then he goes back to the very beginning and he says then where he says these things must come to pass. He said then that means this is a lie. He said no 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 not a lie <clears throat> because these things must come to pass. So in other words, John is seeing things that may already have happened. He's seeing things that will happen. So when he's caught up and he sees all these mystical visions and he struggles to explain them, he struggles to describe them. Mm-hmm. And he uses highly figurative language. I mean, scholars are still trying to interpret what some of these things are. But it's not a lie by any stretch. I mean, this is inspired scripture, comes from the Holy Spirit through an apostolic author, John. He's writing what God showed him, and God would not show him lies. God would not show him something that was false and tell him to write it down. No, this is what he's seeing. And if if your husband is a bit hung up on the issue of, well, that happened in the past, therefore it has to be a lie because it won't happen in the future. He's missing the point. This is not about, this is not to be seen in the context of time as we understand it right now. And I'll give you an example um, where it says in verse 6, she fled into the wilderness and she was there nourished for 1,260 days. That's not a literal number. It's a figurative number. And scholars can you know, take that apart and explain what the different aspects of that number mean or might mean, but he may be taking this too literally, in which case he's missing the point. This is all true, mm-hmm. but it's being told to us in a way that describes future events. Mm-hmm. You know what I would recommend? <clears throat> I would recommend Scott Hahn. He is a Bible scholar, world-class Bible scholar, and he has commentaries on the book of Revelation, including this very verse itself so maybe yeah maybe check that out he can take you much deeper but i hope that little bit that i gave you was helpful thank you i'll be right back this hour supported by notre dame federal credit union join the nation's largest catholic oriented credit union and receive two hundred dollars when you add a direct deposit Learn more at NotreDameFCU.com slash join. That's NotreDameFCU.com slash join. At the intersection of faith and culture, the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Nope. What? Nope. I didn't even say anything. Nope. All right, whatever. Uh, 888-914-9149. By the way, I want to say, how can you even argue with that? It's just the phone number. Nope. It is the phone number. Nope. All right. Turn that guy's mic off. 888-914. It is the phone number. I'm telling you. It's sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. It is. Nope. You can't argue with that. Nope. 888. 914-9149. I'm going to try to get through this. Hey, Bill, thank you for the email you just sent me, and thank you for the reminder that indeed, yes, our very own Kale Clark did a whole series on the book of Revelation, on the faith explained. 
So I am glad you reminded me of that. How did I miss that? I don't know. But um, yes, by all means, check that out. Kale Clark did this just recently, and you can find it on the relevantradio.com website. Shout out, Kale. Let's see. Let's go to Nick in Texas. Good morning, Nick. Hey, good morning, Patrick. Can you hear me okay? I can. Thank you. All right. Um, well, I was calling because I had a question, um, obviously. Okay. I didn't have a dog growing up. I had one that kind of came into my life a little bit later under unexpected circumstances. It took me a while to warm up to him. Okay. Um, but now I'm sure that, or I, I hope that he uh, has a love for me that's almost as much, if not more, as the same love that I have for him. Um, okay. Now, I, I care about people. Uh, generally, I just, I'm just a caring person. Um, I want to see people do well and do great. Um, I don't want to see any, you know, I don't wish any harm on anyone, nothing like that. But my question is, uh, I kind of have a feeling that I know what the reality of the, the, uh, the answer to this question is, but I wanted to kind of... I'm anxious to hear the question. <laughs> you got me on pins and needles, Nick. How would you summarize the question? Uh, well, I, what do you think of the idea that, uh, you know, people might care more about their pets than they do their neighbor? Uh, because I and by that, neighbor, you mean you know, somebody in need or just people in general? Just people in general, you know? I mean, I think the reality is that I think there are a lot of us out there who probably care more about our pets than we do our neighbor. And on the one hand, I understand because I might be one of those people I've been hurt in the past. But on the other hand, you know, that's kind of, that kind of makes me a little sad to think about, you know? But at the mm-hmm. same time, it's, I don't know, I'll, I'll, I'll leave the floor to you. Okay, fair enough. I, I'm just trying to process um, the question to make sure I can give you a reasonable answer. Um, I would say, to answer your question bluntly, that yes, I do think there are some people who are more emotionally invested in their pet than they are in other human beings. Now, for some people, maybe it's a service dog. Maybe the person is blind and really needs this this dog, for example, to help him. I've seen therapy dogs who do wonderful things for patients, people suffering from depression and, and whatnot. So I want to give kudos to all the ways in which these animals can be great friends to us in their own way. But animals, of course, are not human, and they don't rise to the level in terms of their their dignity and their importance, as important as they are. They're not as important, and they don't have the kind of dignity that a human being does. So if somebody is more attentive to his pet than to someone in the family, let's say, who needs his help, or if a couple, I see this, I don't know how often I see it, but I'm certainly aware of it. There's a subset in our culture of people who really don't want to have children. They don't care about children, but by golly, their pets are their children. And women who call themselves dog moms or dog dads or furry babies, things like that, to me suggests that maybe there's a a tendency to go overboard in placing an exaggerated amount of emphasis and importance on an animal, as wonderful as animals are, and they are wonderful, at the expense of being open to life and having children. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert on this topic by any means, but I observe that there's some people do seem to be overly exaggerated in their love for animals and maybe don't really take too much time to help people. 
So, yeah, off the cuff, Nick, I would say that's my take on it. What do you think? Well, I wonder how many people subconsciously feel that way about their pets. You know, maybe they're not aware that they might care about more about their pets than they do someone who might be in need. Maybe. That makes me a little sad, but I don't know what else to say, you know? It just, yeah. I well, just wanted to Yeah, that I guess I would. You know, I think there's a lot of us that don't really care much about each other at, at the moment, and that kind of makes me sad. All right. Well, so here's maybe one way to channel that sadness would be if you detect this in your own life, then correct the problem and start doing things that show, at least just to yourself, that you care about other people, work in a soup kitchen every week, you know, help somebody with, with tasks that they need help with, go out of yourself and do service for other people. So if it's something you yourself see as a problem for you, I would recommend things like that. That way you can you can balance things out and and gain a kind of proper perspective on the importance of animals and how that compares or contrasts with the importance of other people. So you'll notice that when uh, Jesus teaches us to love our neighbor and forgive our enemy, you know, he never talks about animals. He never says, and treat your dog well, make sure your cat has the best cat food. He doesn't say that. He, he does, he, it's presupposed that you do what you should do by way of treating animals correctly, but all of Jesus's gospel quotes are about human beings. And if it's somebody else, and if you have standing in that person's life, Nick, maybe it's your brother or sister, or maybe somebody you have some, you know, right to share your ideas with that person, yeah, go ahead and share your thoughts on that. If it's just society at large, I don't, I mean, I don't feel sad over that. I guess I would just feel like, oh, well, sorry you don't have that figured out, but I'm not going to waste time being sad over it. Unless I'm misunderstanding you, it seems like that's sort of wasted well, I'm energy. not, like, depressed about it, you know, but uh, I just kind of recognize that there's a lot of apathy to a lot of bad things going on in the world. I appreciate your suggestions, though. I, I think mm -hmm. those are great suggestions, and uh, I, just, I just may do that. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, Nick. I'm not, like, I'm not dismissing what you're saying about feeling sad about that. Um, but in, in this world, there are plenty of things that are just wrong and people who have weird ideas and they're doing odd things in their lives. And um, because life's too short, the best thing is, you know, do the best you can, talk to people who will listen, live your life as a good example. And I wouldn't worry too much about people in that situation. But that's just me. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Patrick. I appreciate You're welcome, it. Yeah, most most assuredly. Well, Good to chat with you. Something else? You too. Uh, just lastly, just to close, I just want to say I love you guys. I love everybody. I love my mom. love my dad. I love everyone listening out there. I love my dog. I love, I love me, you, man. Which I took, took me a while to love me, but I love me. I love you, man. And so I, lo I love you all. I love everybody. Take care. I love you, man. Nick. Yeah, I love you too, I love Patrick. You. All right. All right, man, that was great. We're going to hug that out. Um, appreciate the call, Nick. I really do. Let's go to Linda now in Texas. Good morning, Linda. Good morning. I have a quick question. I um, love you, Linda. Linda. <laughs> I love you, too. I love you, too, and I love okay. listening to your okay. show. Okay, I just want to get that out, out of the way right up front. Okay, I'm good. <laughs> yes, I appreciate that. I don't have a dog or a cat, but I have had in the past. Um, my son's co-worker, a female, and her husband um, recently had a baby through a surrogate, 
and okay. after and we met the baby for the first time yesterday. And after they left, my son was saying, what does the church teach on surrogacy? I mean, we're definitely pro-life and all of that, but what does the church teach on surrogacy? And just a little background, this woman Mm -hmm. did get pregnant naturally, carried a baby to eight months, and the baby died in utero. And when they delivered the baby and went in to deliver the baby, they said that she could not carry a baby ever Mm -hmm. again. Um, so she, she was the biological mother of the child? She was the, the yes. wife? Yes, and he is the biological father okay. of the surrogate. Okay. Oh, okay. Now, this is where I'm getting a little confused. So if she's, if she, you said she got, she conceived the natural way, which I presume husband means. What's that? Yes, having intimacy. Yes. Okay. So it wasn't like is. IVF then? No, no, no. Okay. No, she she conceived her first child the natural way. Got but it. But then at eight months, she lost the child. The baby died in utero. And when they took the baby, they told her that she should not have another baby, that she could not have another baby. So now, she, now they're turning to a surrogate for the next they've baby. Already, they've already done that. They have had a baby. Mm-hmm. They, they turn to a surrogate, and they have their baby, which mm-hmm. is... My husband, my son's belief is, from what he was told, that it is was her egg and his sperm, but someone else just carried the baby for them, mm-hmm. baby girl, and she, they now have her with them. So, well, let's praise God for the gift of that little baby girl. I'm sure everybody's happy that she's there, but it doesn't um, negate or obviate the fact that the method of conceiving that child and gestating, more importantly, that child is immoral deeply immoral. So I will read to you the section of the catechism. It sounds like you want like chapter and verse that you can share. Is that right? Yeah, just just in, my son asked me that question and I I didn't know the answer. So I yeah. just curious. Okay, sure. So if you maybe want to jot these three um, chapters or sections rather down, paragraphs down from the catechism, it's paragraph 23, 76, 77, and 78. And here it goes. Techniques that entail the dissociation of husband and wife by the intrusion of a person other than the couple, donation of, donation of sperm or ovum, surrogate uterus, which is what this falls into, are gravely immoral. These techniques um, infringe on the child's right to be born of a father and a mother known to him and bound to each other by marriage. They betray the spouse's right to become a father and mother only through each other. Techniques involving only the married couple are perhaps less reprehensible, yet remain morally unacceptable. That's what this is describing, at least insofar as the ovum and the sperm. They dissociate the sexual act from the procreative act. The act which brings the child into existence is no longer an act by, by which two persons give themselves to one another, but one that entrusts the life and identity of the embryo into the power of doctors and biologists and establishes the domination of technology over the origin and destiny of the human person. Such a relationship of domination is in itself contrary to the dignity and equality that must be common to parents and children. Under the moral aspect, procreation is deprived of its proper perfection when and if it is not when, excuse me, it is not willed as the fruit of the conjugal act, that is to say, of the specific act of the spouse's union. Only respect for the link between the meanings of the conjugal act 
and respect for the unity of the human being make possible procreation and conformity with the dignity of the person. So that's a rather turgid um, sentence there, but it's what, what it's saying is that the only way, bar none, that is moral for the propagation of new children is through the conjugal act. And that by taking this out of the conjugal act, the union, as you put it, the intimacy between the husband and the wife, and moving it into a laboratory experiment, that is deeply immoral, the church is saying. I 100% concur, of course. So the last paragraph, 2378, says, A child is not something owed to one, but is a gift. The supreme gift of marriage is a human person. A child may not be considered a piece of property, an idea to which an alleged right to a child would lead. In this area, only the child possesses genuine rights, the right to be the fruit of the specific act of the conjugal love of his parents, and the right to be respected as a person from the moment of his conception. So all of this is to say that using a surrogate, using uh, donors for either ova or sperm or any of these other things, deeply immoral, always wrong, never permitted, I guess is the best way I could explain that. Does that help, Linda? It does. It does. It answers the question. Like I said, we, we're not judging them. It's not our place to judge them, but we were just curious as to what the church teaching was on right. that. Um, and they may have done this out of well-meaning ignorance. They may not have realized the gravity of, of, of what they did. I would encourage you to encourage them to go to confession, if they're Catholic folk. Go to confession, get right with God, because even if you were hazy on this topic, I don't mean you, but them, even if you didn't uh-huh. realize it or you went in good faith but you just didn't know, um, it's still a serious sin objectively. So they okay. should bring it to confession. And we still love that little baby girl. We welcome her. We cherish her just like any other child. So there's nothing negative about her. But the circumstances of one's conception can be negative, and this would be an example of that. Right, right. Yes. Well, thanks, I, and I Linda. Think I wish I had more time, but the music's playing. Forgive me, but I hope that's helpful. And I'll be right back. Join Father Rocky this September for a pilgrimage to Poland and Prague. You'll visit the lands of St. John Paul the Great, St. Faustina, Our Lady of Czestochowa, and the Infant Child of Prague. Seats are limited. Information at relevantradio.com slash Poland. That's relevantradio.com slash Poland. Pure energy. Get connected to the conversation. Call now. 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Patrick Madrid is on now. Relevant Radio. Fascinating. So you sent me a note, Cyrus, saying, I never told you I loved you. And my response is yes, and? <laughs> yeah, I noticed. I noticed. Yeah, what's your point? Yeah. What's your point there? Uh, 888-914-9149. Uh, back to the phones. Let's go now to Bridget in Summit, New Jersey. Hi, Bridget. Bridget, Patrick, thank yes. you for taking the call. I'm yeah. very happy. Are you not Bridget? Are you holding the phone for Bridget? <laughs> no, no, I'm Bridget. I'm just okay. a little nervous. Oh, the it's reason okay. I'm calling, I was at a recent parish discussion group of interested and informed people. And the topic came up about confession, forgiveness, purgatory, and plenary indulgences. 
We were all confused, and there was no absolute determination made. Hmm. I can give you a rundown if you'd like. Please. Thank you. So we're talking about penance, purgatory, and indulgences. Are those the three items? Yes. Okay. And and confession after confession or extramunction. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's roll all those things together. So the starting point for this is that we're all sinners in need of salvation and purification. We can't do it for ourselves. This is why the second person of the Trinity, God himself, became man and in Jesus Christ in the Incarnation to save us from our sins. So sin is the root cause of these issues, or the root connection, I would say, to these issues like penance, confession, etc., So when you commit a sin, this is true for all of us, when you commit a sin, it incurs the penalty that's due to the sin, which Jesus alone can pay for. He is our unique mediator, our unique Savior, and only He can pay the the price or the penalty for our sins. This is why the Bible calls Jesus in 1 Timothy 2.5, He's the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So that's the penalty. Now, there is another reality or dimension to sin, and that is the effects of sin. And Jesus, by his saving death on the cross, does not remove those effects of sin. To use some examples, let's say that you, I don't know, embezzled a million dollars from your company, and you got caught, and you went to jail, and you were sorrowful for your sin, and you repented, and you told the Lord, I'm truly sorry for what I did, and you go to confession, and you're absolved, and the penalty for your crime uh, your sin has been paid for by Jesus, but you're still in jail. There's a, there's a temporal effect due to sin, and that would be one in, in the temporal order, like, you know, in, in flesh and blood terms, the things you can see, you're actually in jail. There are other things. So, for example, let's say somebody does something terrible and destroys his marriage as a result of it. His wife no longer loves him, and he loses the affection of his wife and his children, and he lives the rest of his life in pain, not because he wasn't forgiven by Jesus for the thing that he did. He he went to confession. He's truly sorry he was forgiven. But the effect of his sin remains. Now, these things are true often in what we say that is the temporal order or things you can see and touch and hear and so forth. But they're also true in the supernatural order insofar as your sins have effects in that realm as well. So when you perform a penance, when you go to confession, also known as reconciliation, and the priest who absolves you sacramentally of your sins that you've already gone to God directly for, you've already confessed your sins directly to the Lord. In fact, you can't really make a good confession unless you first confess your sins to God in your heart. And then when you're properly disposed, you go to confession, the priest absolves you of your sins, and then he will impose a penance on you. He may say, say, the rosary every day for the next week, or say three Hail Marys and five Our Fathers. It varies depending upon the priest, and it also would vary depending upon the gravity of the sins that were confessed. So when you pray those prayers that are imposed on you as a penance, that offsets, if we can use that term, that expiates is another way of saying it, the the need to do penance for your sins, the effects of your sins, not the penalty. But those effects of your sin, you can think of them as scars or stains. Those are just analogies, but that's one way to think of it. Jesus said 
blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. This is in the the um, Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. He says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We're told in Revelation 21, 27, nothing unclean can enter heaven. So Jesus pays the penalty for our sins, but there are still those after effects. And so when you perform a penance, maybe because it was imposed in confession, maybe because you want to perform a penance, you fast during Lent, for example, or you you give up something you really like as a penance. These are ways of eroding or eliminating, maybe a better way to put it, the effects due to sin. Now, you mentioned um, 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 you mentioned uh, the holy anointing, the sacrament of holy anointing. So holy anointing is an extension of the sacrament of confession, or we can look at it in that sense because in in James chapter five, where the paradigm for this sacrament is given to us, if someone is sick, let him call the priests, the presbyters of the church, who will anoint the sick person with oil. And he may be restored to health, but at the very least, his sins will be forgiven. So through the ministry of the priest, this sacrament also forgives sin. And the church says that this sacrament is appropriate when, by virtue of maybe old, old age, you're near death. It doesn't mean you have to be ill, but if you're quite elderly, death is not far away. So that's the right time to receive that sacrament. Or if you're seriously ill, regardless of your age, you can receive that sacrament, presuming you've been baptized, of course. Uh, So that's where that sacrament fits in. It's intended for those who are in danger of death. And then lastly, I think you mentioned indulgences. We might as well add purgatory to this as well. Uh, Purgatory is the way in which God cleanses the soul of any remaining vestiges of those effects of sin that have been forgiven, they've been paid for by Jesus Christ, they've been forgiven, and they have left scars or stains, where there's some restitution yet to be performed to satisfy God's justice. So purgatory, as we catch a glimpse of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, involves the revelation by God's fire of the work of your life. And as St. Paul says there, the good works of your life, the gold, silver, and precious stones, those are refined and retained. But the fire burns away or purges away all of the, what he describes to be um, straw, hay, uh, the the things that are flammable in your life. Wood, hay, and stubble is, is the exact terminology that he uses. Those are flammable. Those are the bad works. And he says those are burned off. He says it involves suffering that this burning away of the wood, the hay, and the straw, or the wood, the hay, and the chaff, some translations read, that this involves suffering. He says the man suffers loss as this is taking place. And then he says he will be saved, but only as though passing through fire, meaning that his ultimate salvation has not happened yet. He's not in heaven yet. It's after his death, but before he enters into heaven, and this process of purification is taking place, which leads to the issue of indulgences. An indulgence is the church's granting under the authority of Jesus, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, he said in Matthew 18. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. So this is an example of the church loosing you from the need to do penance, however much penance may be left to you to do for all of your sins of your life that have been forgiven. So that if you receive a plenary indulgence, all need to do penance is remitted 
In other words, the superabundant merits of Jesus Christ joined together with him, also the members of the body of Christ, the Blessed Virgin Mary and all the saints, those merits are applied to you and you are entirely free from any of those, uh, any need to do penance in this life. And if you were to die right away, you would go straight to heaven. So I think I've covered everything. Did I miss anything, Bridget? No, that that was very wonderful, Patrick. But also, there are times that God can grant with his love and his blessings a soul to not be able to suffer in purgatory if he so chooses, if he decides that. Of course, he's God. So this is why we pray that God has mercy on the souls of the faithful departed. So we're imploring him to either to minimize and shorten the duration of their time of purification or to eliminate it altogether. And he can do that if he wishes to. That that was where the confusion was. Can a soul under certain circumstances go directly to heaven? Oh, yeah. So if let's say that the person who dies receives the sacraments of the sick, maybe is even fortunate enough to receive the viaticum, which is a Latin phrase that means... It loosely translated, to go with you on the journey. So to receive Holy Communion as you're near death, to receive the Sacrament of Holy Anointing, maybe even the Sacrament of Confession, to receive the Apostolic Pardon, that is a special blessing in the form of an indulgence that the priest can give and that entirely eliminates any need for penance in the life to come. So yeah, there, there are ways in which somebody can go straight to heaven. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Patrick. You're welcome. I was so confused after the meeting, and thank you for being oh, there to answer welcome. our questions. God. You're most welcome. One thing you can do, Bridget, if you wish, is you can grab the link to this hour of the show about an hour after the— uh, yesterday it was 45 minutes. That's how fast Cyrus works. After the show is over, <laughs> we get these shows posted. So you could play that—you know, just grab the link and play it for your friends if they want to hear it as well. I think I will. Okay. And God bless Cyrus. He's very quick. God he bless works you hard. He, I ain't lying. He's been trying. That's for sure. <laughs> God Thanks, bless Bridget. you. Thank you so much. Thank Bye-bye. you. Uh, let's go to Nicole in Cocoa Beach, Florida. Hi, Nicole. Hi. Um, so, yeah, on the topic about the burlesque question, I'm, I'm, I'm a little baffled even that a good Catholic... Okay. Let me rephrase that, that any Catholic person with um, good standing morals would find humor in burlesque and even want to um, attend such a thing. Do you mean the more classical meaning of the term burlesque or the more modern meaning like, you know, well, you know what I mean by the more modern meaning, right? Yes, of course I know. And I'm going to go with both, both definitions. Um, I come from an extremely morally depraved and sinful background. I was um, an entertainer in the adult entertainment business Mm -hmm. for quite some years to the point where I actually named myself Cinnamon with a capital S. Mm. Um, Oh, wow. You were reveling in it, weren't you? Reveling um, in in horrible, horrible ways. But, Mm. you know, of course, the Lord has saved me. So, okay, so... Looking at the way that it, whether it's a woman um, performing this show or a man um, 
portraying themselves as a woman. Either way, it is extremely disrespectful to find humor uh, for the, the entertainer or a person to find humor in, a, in portraying a woman in such a vile and grotesque manner in the costumes and in the way that, you know, the entertainment is. It's just disgusting, really. And mm -hmm. so for the person's soul, for the Catholic who might want to entertain themselves with this type of uh, quote-unquote humor, um, it's bad for their soul to open up and, and to just, it's just bad. It's bad, bad, bad. <laughs> That's what I have I'm to say you. about it. <laughs> I'm with you. I think there's maybe a little little less uh, danger or problem with the more old-fashioned form where there is no scantily clad women or et cetera, but I absolutely concur with you. It is debasing and degrading, especially in the more modern sense, and to be avoided at all costs. We agree on that, right, Nicole? Uh, we certainly do. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you. Good chatting, and I'll be right back. Yeah.